1: Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Monday, January 29th, 2024. Iran denies it had anything to do with the drone attack on a U.S. base in Jordan that killed three American troops and wounded many more. But the Biden administration says Iran is to blame and the U.S. will respond. We'll hear from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Pentagon's Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh, and the White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby, also Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma what he thinks President Biden should do. More details today about Israeli information that members of the United Nations Palestinian Aid Agency were involved in Hamas's October 7th deadly attack on Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken talks about the U.S. suspending aid to that a- agency and the United Nations Secretary General spokesperson on the investigation the UN is undertaking. Qatar's Prime Minister is in Washington. He gives an update on the meeting over the weekend in Paris with the CIA plus Israel's and Egypt's intelligence services about brokering a deal between Hamas and Israel to release more hostages held by Hamas. Back in Washington, Congress back in session this week and a bipartisan U.S. border security deal may or may not be ready to be brought up in the Senate, while a House committee plans to take up impeachment articles against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over his handling of border security. We'll get the latest from The Hills congressional reporter Michael Schnell. The man who pleaded guilty to intentionally getting a job with the IRS to illegally release the tax records of Donald Trump and other wealthy individuals sentenced to five years in prison today. And actors Chris Evans and Mark Casson describe how they got involved in Bipartisan Civics, launching their website exploring controversial issues. It's called A Starting Place. And we start with the drone attack on Sunday on the U.S. military outpost in Jordan on the border with Syria that killed three U.S. service members and injured over 20 more. It's the first time U.S. troops have been killed by enemy fire since the Israel-Gaza war began Almost four months ago, President Joe Biden yesterday blamed radical Iran-backed militant groups and said the U.S. would respond. But an Iranian foreign ministry spokesperson in a statement today says the Islamic Republic has no involvement in the resistance group's decisions on the way they support the Palestinian nation or defend themselves and the people of their countries in the face of any aggression and occupation. The White House says President Biden met today with his national security team which includes the National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, the Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines, and the Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood-Randall. The Defense Secretary spoke about the drone attack as he opened a meeting today at the Pentagon with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Secretary Austin also talks about returning to the Pentagon for the first time since his release from the hospital and then home recovery from complications following treatment for for prostate cancer.
2: Let me start with my outrage and sorrow for the death of three brave U.S. troops in Jordan and for the other troops who were wounded. The President and I will not tolerate attack on U.S. forces, and we will take all necessary actions to defend the U.S. and our troops. Now, at this important time, I'm glad to be back uh, at the Pentagon. I feel good and am recovering well, but still recovering. Uh, And I appreciate all the, the good wishes that I've received thus far.
1: The Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin at the Pentagon today. John Kirby, spokesperson for the White House National Security Council, opened up today's White House news conference on the drone attack.
3: The President and the First Lady, as well as everyone in the administration, send their condolences to the family of those who were killed. No blue star family ever wants to become a gold star family. And sadly, there are now three more families on that roster. It's hard to imagine the grief that they're feeling right now and that they will feel for the rest of their lives. We want them to know that we'll make sure that they get all the support that they need and that we mourn with them. We also wish a complete recovery for all those wounded in this attack. They are receiving and will continue to receive the very best medical care that the military can provide them. Second. These troops were conducting a vital mission in the region aimed at helping us work with partners to counter ISIS. And even as the Defense Department gathers more information about the attack, that mission must and will continue. Third, the counter ISIS mission is separate and distinct. Indeed, it has been long-standing and unrelated to our efforts to support Israel and to prevent a wider conflict in the region. We do not seek another war. We do not seek to escalate. But we will absolutely do what is required To protect ourselves to continue that mission and to respond appropriately to these attacks now i know the first uh, set of questions i'm going to get are uh, well what does that look like what's appropriate and what response options is the president considering i hope you can understand why i'm not going to telegraph any punches here from the podium nor will i get in front of the president or his decision making he's met twice with his national security team yesterday and today He's weighing the options before him. As he said yesterday, we will respond. We'll do that on our schedule, in our time, and we'll do it in the manner of the president's choosing as commander-in-chief. We'll also do it fully cognizant of the fact that these groups, backed by Tehran, have just taken the lives of American troops. And I think I'll leave it there.
1: John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council, opening up today's White House briefing. During the Q&A with reporters, one of them asked not what the response will be, but how to get to that decision about a response. John, how does the president balance a desire to not see escalation in the region
4: with a decision to respond?
3: That's the hard part of it, isn't it, Jeff? I mean, that's what being commander-in-chief is all about, is... is um, is acting in accordance with our national security interests, uh, what's a, what's unacceptable to those interests, and what has to be done uh, to protect those interests. There's no easy answer here. And that's why the President is meeting with his national security team, weighing the options before him. He'll do that as he's done in the past in a very careful, deliberate way so that our national security interests are, 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 interests are best preserved.
1: And has the President, has the administration communicated via a third party to Iran what? It, the message that you're saying on tv about not wanting to have escalation
3: i am not aware as you and i are speaking that there's been uh, uh, a, a private message uh, relayed to leaders in iran we have done that in the past uh, but as you and i are speaking right now i'm not aware of such a, a mechanism
1: john kirby spokesperson for the white house national security council at today's white house news conference Several Republican senators have been calling for the U.S. to retaliate against Iran itself. Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina in a statement saying that strikes against Iranian proxies will not deter Iranian aggression. And President Biden should strike targets of significance inside Iran. And from Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas, he writes, The only answer to these attacks must be devastating military retaliation against Iran's terrorist forces, both in Iran and across the Middle East. Anything less will confirm Joe Biden is a coward, unworthy of being commander-in-chief. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma was interviewed today on CNBC.
2: There's been 153 attacks on um, on American interests, American personnel since October 17th uh, by Iranian-backed uh, terrorist organizations, from the Houthis uh, to, uh, to actors working inside of Iraq and inside of Iran both. And we have only responded nine times, nine times with direct hits and delayed. We know every single time they're shooting a drone or they're shooting direct missiles at us. We know where they came from. We can track them. We could respond immediately. The only thing Iranians understand is strength. And, and by trying to think that you don't want to escalate it, plays right into their, as I would say, their propaganda. When you, when, you, when you just look the other way, they use that as a messaging to the people saying, see, they're afraid of us. This is why we have strength, and it empowers them. When you go after them, they will stop.
3: But, they, but the question is, go after who? Are you suggesting direct strikes on the Iranians who are saying that they are not directly involved with this? Are you saying, take out every one of these
5: rebel groups where you know the drones are coming from, where you know the missiles are?
2: Two, you got you got to go both ways. One, you go directly with action, direct action at the individuals that's attacking you, and then two, you go directly at Iranians and put the sanctions back in place and pull the money that you gave Cutter back out of the banks. But you're not talking about directly attacking. You're if they continue, about you do financial sanctions first. I think you go after financial sanctions first. If it doesn't stop, then you got to go directly at them. You cannot kill the snake if you don't cut the head of it off. And you don't fear. I mean, look, some people fear that... That something like that then escalates this into some other place that's much worse than where we are now. That's the that, well, Andrew, I, I, that's the that's sure. the pacifist version of it, right? Sure, sure. But you don't you don't just uh, appease a bully either. At some point you gotta put a bunch of bully in the mouth. And and what's happening with Iran, Iran is the bully. They are backing all the terrorist organizations around the Middle East. And everyone knows it. There's no question about it, they are doing that. So if you don't go after them, then they're gonna get worse and worse, and worse, and so it, you may escalate it, but look what happens. They've attacked us 153 times since October 17th, and now they're starting to kill American personnel. We lost, we've lost we already lost three. We're going to continue to lose. Mass.
1: Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, Republican from Oklahoma, today on CNBC. The Senate is not in session today. They return on Tuesday. A USA Today article about the drone attack has this. About 2,500 U.S. troops are based in Iraq and 900 in Syria, 9,000 in Bahrain, 13,000 in Kuwait, 8,000 in Qatar, along with a few thousand each in Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and United Arab Emirates. The Pentagon does not consistently release precise totals, and most figures are estimates based on media releases and White House statements, That from USA Today. At the Pentagon today, the Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh held a news conference and released the names of the U.S. service members who were killed.
0: Yesterday, three U.S. service members were killed and dozens of personnel were injured from a one-way attack unmanned aerial system that impacted a U.S. military facility located in northeastern Jordan near the Syrian border. The names of those soldiers who lost their lives were Sergeant William Rivers, Specialist Kennedy Sanders, and Specialist Breonna Moffat all of whom were assigned to the 718th Engineer Company, a U.S. Army Reserve unit based out of Fort Moore, Georgia. These three fallen heroes were deployed to Jordan in support of Operation Inherent Resolve and the International Coalition working to ensure the lasting defeat of ISIS. These brave Americans and their families are in our prayers and the entire Department of Defense mourns their loss. We also pray for the speedy recovery of those who were injured. Eight personnel who received injuries required medical evacuation from Jordan to the Baghdad Diplomatic Support Center. Three of those patients are scheduled for imminent transport to Landstuhl Regional Medical Center for follow-on care. The other five have been assessed for mild TBIs and are expected to return to duty. We are still assessing what happened and how a one-way attack drone was able to impact the facility. U.S. Central Command continues to investigate this attack, and for operations, security, and force protection reasons, we're not going to discuss further specifics or measures we're taking to prevent such actions or future attacks. But we do know that Iran-backed militias are responsible for continued attacks on U.S. forces in the region. And as the President and the Secretary have stated, we will not tolerate continued attacks on American forces, and we will take all necessary actions to defend U.S. military men and women forward deployed and we will do so at a time and place of our choosing.
1: The Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh opening up her news conference. A Wall Street Journal article reads, The U.S. failed to stop a deadly attack on an American military outpost in Jordan when the enemy drone approached its target at the same time. A U.S. drone was also returning to base, U.S. officials said Monday. The return of the U.S. drone led to some confusion over whether the incoming drone Was friend or foe, officials have concluded so far. Sabrina Singh was asked today whether this was accurate.
0: And was it human error that failed to recognize that this was an Iranian drone coming to the base? It's something that um, Central Command is looking into to find out exactly what happened. Um, As I mentioned at the top, They're doing the assessment on this. They're working through what they need to do to um, make sure our service members, whether being in Jordan, Iraq and Syria, are further protected. Um, But I just don't have more to share at this time.
1: Pentagon Deputy Press Secretary Sabrina Singh. This is Washington Today. Reuters reports that an Israeli intelligence dossier that prompted a cascade of countries to halt funds for United Nations Palestinian aid agency includes allegations that some staff took part in abductions and killings during the October 7th raid that sparked the Gaza war. The six-page dossier seen by Reuters alleges that some 190 UNRWA employees, including teachers, have doubled as Hamas or Islamic Jihad militants. It has names and pictures for 11 of them. The Palestinians have accused Israel of falsifying information to tarnish UNRWA, which says it has fired some staffers and is investigating the allegations. The U.S. is among the countries which has paused funding to this agency. Secretary of State Antony Blinken was asked today during a joint news conference with the Qatari Prime Minister at the State Department about the report and the pause.
3: The UN Secretary General has appealed to the US and 10 other countries who have suspended funding to UNRWA following revelations regarding allegations that at least a dozen of its 13,000 employees may have had involvement in the October 7th attacks and more than 100 more may uh, have links to militant groups. Under what circumstances and how soon could the US consider resuming its support considering this decision comes as Gaza is tipping into famine and given your own personal and persistent appeals, that humanitarian aid to Gaza Gazan civilians increase and not decrease?
6: The reports that we got last week, and uh, UNRWA brought them to us, um, were deeply, deeply troubling. Uh, it is imperative that UNRWA immediately, uh, as it said it would, uh, investigate, um, that it hold people accountable uh, as necessary, and that it review its uh, procedures. I had a very good conversation with Secretary General of the United Nations, Guterres, last week when we were first made aware of these uh, allegations, and we're going to be looking very hard at the steps that UNRWA takes, again, to make sure that uh, this is fully and thoroughly investigated, that there's clear accountability, uh, and that as necessary, uh, measures are, are put in place so that this doesn't happen, uh, again, assuming the allegations are fully borne out. Uh, certainly, we, we've not had the, we, we haven't had the ability to investigate them ourselves, but they are highly, highly credible. At the same time, and as you indicated, UNRWA has played and continues to play a, an absolutely indispensable role uh, in trying to make sure that men, women, and children who so desperately need assistance in Gaza actually get it. And no one else can play the role that UNRWA has been playing, uh, certainly not in the, in the near term. Uh, no one has the, uh, the reach, uh, the capacity, uh, the structure to do what UNRWA has been doing. And from our perspective, it's uh, important, more than imper- important, imperative that uh, that, that role continues. So that only underscores the importance of UNRWA um, tackling this uh, as quickly, as effectively, and as thoroughly as possible, and that's what we're looking for.
1: Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the State Department today in Washington. UNRWA is UNRWA. The official name of the agency is United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees in the Near East. U.S. Congresswoman Alexandria Casa Cortez, Democrat of New York, posting today cutting off support to UNRWA, the primary source of humanitarian aid to 2 million plus Gazans, is unacceptable. Among an organization of 13,000 U.N. aid workers, risking the starvation of millions over grave allegations of 12 is indefensible. Another article from Reuters, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres vowed on Sunday to hold to account any U.N. employee involved in acts of terror after the allegations that some refugee agency staffers were involved in the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. But Secretary Guterres implored governments to continue supporting the UN Refugee Agency after nine countries paused funding. A spokesperson for the UN Secretary General, Stéphane Dujuric, elaborated at the start of his daily news conference at the UN in New York City.
4: As the Secretary General made it clear over the weekend, the United Nations is taking swift action following the extremely serious allegations made against several uh, staff members from UNRWA The contracts of those staff members directly involved have been terminated, as we told you on Friday. An investigation by the UN's Office of Internal Oversight Services was immediately activated. Uh, The Secretary General has remained very active on this issue throughout the weekend and this morning. A few moments ago, he met with the Under Secretary General, head of OIOS, to ensure that the investigation will be done swiftly and as efficiently as possible. Uh, Any employee involved in acts of terror will be held accountable, including through criminal prosecution. And as we said, the secretariat is ready to cooperate with a competent authority to prosecute the individuals in line with the secretariat's normal procedure for such cooperation. The Secretary General has also been engaging with the UNRWA leadership and donors uh, to UNRWA, as well as regional leaders, such as King Abdullah of Jordan, who he spoke to a short while ago, and President Sisi of Egypt, uh, with whom he will speak uh, a bit later this afternoon. Uh, The Secretary General is personally horrified by the accusations against employees of UNRWA but his message to donors, especially those who have suspended their contribution, is to at least guarantee the continuity of UNRWA's operations. As we have tens of thousands of dedicated staff working throughout the region, the dire needs of the desperate population they serve must be met. At this point, the outlook for UNRWA and the millions of people it serves, not only in Gaza, but also in East Jerusalem, in the West Bank, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria, is very bleak.
1: Stefan Dejerik is a spokesperson for the United Nations Secretary-General at a news conference at the UN in New York City. The Qatari Prime Minister, Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Al Thani, writes Axios, said on Monday that US, Qatari, Egyptian and Israeli officials made progress this weekend in the talks aimed at securing the release of hostages held by Hamas in Gaza. The Qatari Prime Minister met with the chiefs of the CIA, Israel's Mossad, an Egyptian intelligence service in Paris over the weekend in an effort to reach a breakthrough in the hostage deal talks, which had stalled over significant gaps between Israel and Hamas. Qatari and Egyptian mediators plan to present Hamas with a framework this week for negotiations over a three-phase deal. The first phase would include a six-week pause in fighting, and the release of roughly 40 Israeli hostages held by Hamas in exchange for Israel freeing a significant number of Palestinian prisoners. According to Israeli and Qatari officials, that was reporting from Axios. The Qatari prime minister spoke today in Washington, D.C. at the Atlantic Council.
7: We are in much better place than where we were uh, a few weeks ago. We have seen that uh, the whole process was working in November that resulted in the release of 109 hostages, and unfortunately this uh, process fallen apart uh, at that time. And the intensity of the war actually increased that made the situation more uh, complex, as you have highlighted. That uh, there was a clear demand of the permanent ceasefire ahead of the negotiations, which I believe that uh, we moved from that place to a place where it has uh, potentially might lead to a ceasefire uh, permanently in the future, and this is what we are all aiming for because we've seen also the suffering of the people on, in Gaza and we've seen the amount of destruction over there. Now our Main role as a mediator is trying our best to get a negotiated solution where it can bring the hostages uh, safely back to their homes, yet also stopping the bombing uh, and the continuation of of the killing of the civilians. We've seen the numbers are increasing dramatically, and uh, I mean. Uh, what I think that uh, uh, we are seeing in Gaza is not resulting with the, is not getting any result to get the hostages back, but the process is the one which is getting them back. Now, on what you have laid uh, Andrea, uh, I don't know where did you get all these details on on the proposals and the framework, but uh, I can say you are well informed uh we have uh, I think yesterday was uh, good progress made uh, to get uh, things back in shape and to at least to lay a foundation for the way forward. Uh, we cannot uh, say that this uh, will make us you know uh, in better shape very soon, but we are hoping actually uh, uh, to relay this proposal to Hamas and to get them, to a place where uh, they engage positively and constructively in the process, because we think that in in uh, in today's world, I think that's the only game in town now, and that will be the only way to get the situation de-escalated. And we hope that both parties taking this opportunity to get, of course. Uh, uh, to make the war stop, but also to get the hostages back.
1: The Prime Minister of Qatar at the Atlantic Council in Washington, D.C., He mentioned Andrea, one of the moderators, Andrea Mitchell, NBC News Chief Foreign Affairs Correspondent. Jerusalem Post reports that Israeli Defense Minister Yoav Galand spoke to IDF troops in the Gaza border communities and said a quarter of the Hamas terrorists were eliminated and at least another quarter were wounded. Israeli media reported on Monday. Washington Today continues in a moment.
0: Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague Sean.
1: Thanks, Rachel.
8: If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word.
0: Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org/connect and subscribe to Word for Word today.
8: Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org/connect. Thank you.
1: Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. And the app is free. Associated Press writes that President Joe Biden has made some strong claims over the past few days about shutting down the U.S.-Mexico border as he tries to salvage a border deal in Congress that would also unlock money for Ukraine. The deal had been in the works for months and seemed to be nearing completion in the Senate before it began to fall apart, largely because Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump doesn't want it to happen. President Biden said over the weekend a bipartisan bill will be good for America and help fix our broken immigration system and allow speedy access for those who deserve to be here and Congress needs to get it done. it will also give me as president the emergency authority to shut down the border until it could get back under control, If that bill were the law today, I'd shut down the border right now and fix it quickly. That quote from President Biden over the weekend is reported by Associated Press. Today, the White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said at her news conference that the bipartisan border agreement should be brought up in the Senate and passed and the House and passed so it can be signed into law.
5: As the president said over the weekend, we have been working in good faith and across the aisle to make real progress on one of the most important issues we are facing securing our border. Now we need Speaker Johnson to step up and provide the authorities and resources we requested to secure the border. I want to point out uh, one thing to all of you, until recently, Speaker Johnson has also advocated for new resources and new legal authorities via legislation to secure the border. The Trump administration argued the same thing with the full-throated endorsement of then-Congressman Mike Johnson. For his part, over the last two months, President Biden and his team have been working with a bipartisan group of senators to put together toughest, the toughest, and the fairest border security bill in history. This bipartisan agreement would deliver the resources the President asked for in his supplemental, like 1,300 new Border Patrol agents, 375 new immigration judges, 1,600 new asylum officers, 100 cutting-edge inspection machines to catch fentanyl. It would also provide a a president with a new emergency authority to secure our border when it becomes overwhelmed. And as you heard from the president, he would use that authority if the bipartisan agreement became law. Now, if, P- if Speaker Johnson continues to believe, as President Biden and Republicans and Democrats in Congress do, that we have an imperative to act immediately on the border, he should give this administration the authority and funding we're requesting to secure the border.
1: The White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre at her news conference today at the White House. C-SPAN spoke this morning with The Hills congressional reporter Michael Schnell about the border security agreement in the Senate and also about the House Homeland Security Committee planning to consider impeachment articles against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday.
9: Chris Murphy actually gave a preview yesterday during one of the Sunday shows saying that this is what's in the deal. He said that the president would have the authority to shut down the border if uh, crossings between ports of entry reached, quote, I want to say his exact quote here, quote, catastrophically high levels. That was Chris Murphy's language. And that's then when we saw the president uh, late last week say that, you know, if he was given this legislation, he'd sign into law and shut down the border. Immediately that sort of drew some some eyeballs some concern from some individuals but you know I think that links back to what this key piece of the deal is of what Chris Murphy said that the president would have that authority it would also reform asylum and uh, and speed up work permits for some of the folks who are coming into the US so those are just some of the details that Chris Murphy has released I want to you know caution that both the top negotiators Langford and Murphy has said that there have been a lot of leaks throughout this process that's what happens on Capitol Hill especially when you're working on something so high stakes for such a long period of time they've both cautioned. Don't listen to the leaks. Read the text when you finally get it.
1: There was an article in the, The Hill, the headline, The Border's Political Value is Crushing Talks on Policy Itself. Uh, Some folks out there who see this as more valuable as a political football to to keep in the air. Uh, Just uh, talk through some of that process that you're watching and and who kind of the main
9: players are there. Yeah, so the border has always been a politically charged, politically polarizing matter. That's why we haven't seen substantive border security or immigration reform in decades because it's just bedeviled lawmakers every time they've tried to bring it up. But we sort of see this politicization of the issue be kicked into overdrive. And that's for two main reasons, I would say. A, we're in an election year. We are officially in 2024. Primary caucus season is underway. The general is just around the corner. Everything in Washington is going to be politicized. But the second thing is that voters and and, and voters and Americans are really interested in the border and immigration reform. There was a poll just this month from Harvard uh, from, from Harvard and Harris that found that immigration is now the top issue to voters. So when they were asked, you know, what's your highest concern in the 2024 election, 35 percent said immigration, 32 percent said inflation. So we're now talking about a possibility of a bipartisan deal on what is the issue that is most salient among voters. So that's the reason why we're seeing it so politicized. And you asked about the main players here. Uh, former President Trump, I believe, would top that list. He has railed against these Negotiations encourage uh, lawmakers and posts on Truth Social, Republicans not to accept any border deal unless it's perfect and they get everything that they want. I mean, John, you know as well as I do that when you have a bipartisan deal on Capitol Hill, especially when you're dealing with the Senate, which needs 60 votes, so by nature it needs to be bipartisan, you're never going to get everything you want. There's going to be some give and take from both sides of the aisle. So Donald Trump demanding that it's perfect, that's just not going to happen. And then you have this Democrats accusing Republicans of saying, well, You've been hammering us for the border. You've been highlighting the situation at the southern border for months, saying that it needs to be addressed. Democrats are finally coming to the table. So what a lot of Democrats are saying now is that you are not going to go through these negotiations because... You want the president to be able, the, the former president to be able to campaign on this issue of immigration and on the border. Democrats essentially saying that Republicans don't want to hand President Biden a win, which would then help him in the polls and help him in 2024, and also take away a chunk of you know an issue that the former president wants to campaign on. He wants to campaign on immigration. So that's sort of the situation where we are right now, which you know to, to put a fine point on it, immigration reform was always going to be difficult. Border security was always going to be a, a heavy lift and an upward battle. This is Making it entirely more difficult.
1: And this all happening at a time when the man in charge of the border, the Homeland Security Secretary, is facing two articles of impeachment that were unveiled yesterday. Mm -hmm. Uh, What do those articles, uh, what will he be impeached on?
9: Yeah, first, isn't this a fascinating split screen? In the Senate, you have bipartisan negotiators working with uh, the Biden administration. Mayorkas has been part of these talks trying to come to a consensus on border security to address the situation at the southern border. Just a few feet across the Capitol on the House side, you have Republicans taking a crucial step this week Towards impeaching Mayorkas, impeaching the border security chief. Uh, So you know, just a fascinating way that both sides of the eye, both sides of the Capitol, are addressing this politically charged situation. So on Tuesday, we're going to see a markup in the House Homeland Security Committee on two articles of impeachment against Alejandro Mayorkas. The first one accuses him of quote willful and systemic refusal to comply with the law essentially saying that he hasn't complied with the law because of a host of Biden administration policies. The second, quote, breach of trust, accusing him of, uh, you know, not participating in this investigation and things of that nature. So we're going to see a markup and a vote. In the Homeland Security Committee on Tuesday, if that is successful and the articles are advanced out of committee, we'll then see a vote on the House floor. And Speaker Mike Johnson, in a letter to Republican lawmakers last week, said he's going to bring this to the floor as soon as possible, calling it a necessary, We'll say, you know, suggesting it's a necessary priority. So it's entirely possible that within the next days, maybe even, you know, weeks, maybe days, we could see Alejandro Mayorkas impeached in the House.
1: Michael Schnell is a congressional reporter with The Hill, joining C-SPAN this morning. On the border security bill in the Senate, Donald Trump, former president and Republican presidential candidate, posting today on his Truth Social platform, I had the safest and most secure border in U.S. history. I didn't need a bill. They are using this horrific Senate bill as a way of being able to put the border disaster onto the shoulders of the Republicans. The Democrats broke the border. They should fix it. No legislation is needed. It's already there. And on the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Congressman Nick LaLota, Republican of New York, a member of the Homeland Security Committee, spoke today on the House floor.
10: Congress writes the laws and the executive branch enforces them. Let me say that again, Mr. Speaker. Congress writes the laws and the executive branch enforces them. At least that's what we teach our kids, and that's been the norm throughout our nation's history. Yet President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas have refused to enforce our nation's border security laws. Now, as House Republicans are poised to impeach Secretary Mayorkas for his willful and systematic refusal to enforce our nation's border security laws, President Biden feigns that Congress must pass even more border security laws before he can act. It's a sad attempt to shift blame, Mr. Speaker. If the president truly wanted to secure our border by a stroke of a pen, he could reinstate remain in Mexico. President Biden could cancel the mass parole of unvetted migrants into the United States. He could cease repositioning border agents away from the border, and he could resume border wall construction. But, Mr. Speaker, we know the president's not going to do that. The president should do that, and he should start today by enforcing our border security laws. But sadly, he won't, and he should not be able to shift blame to anybody else.
1: Congressman Nick Loda, Republican from New York, a member of the Homeland Security Committee, today on the House floor. His committee will be marking up the two articles of impeachment against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on Tuesday, January 20th, 10 a.m. Eastern. We'll have coverage on C-SPAN radio and C-SPAN 3 television and also be streamed at C-SPAN.org and our free mobile app, C-SPAN Now. From NBC News, the former Internal Revenue Service contractor who leaked the tax records of former President Donald Trump to The New York Times, as well as the tax records of billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk to ProPublica, was sentenced Monday to five years in prison. Charles Littlejohn pleaded guilty in October, and prosecutors sought the statutory maximum of five years in federal prison, saying that he abused his position by unlawfully disclosing thousands of Americans' federal tax returns and other private financial information to multiple news organizations. Prosecutors said that Littlejohn weaponized his access to unmasked taxpayer data to further his own personal political agenda, believing that he was above the law. Little John was sentenced in U.S. District Court in Washington. The judge said during the sentencing, you can be an outstanding person and commit bad acts. What you did in targeting the sitting president of the United States was an attack on our constitutional democracy, from NBC News. Senator Rick Scott, Republican of Florida, gave a victim impact statement before sentencing today. He says he was one of the people whose tax information was leaked by Charles Littlejohn. And then after Senator Scott came outside the courthouse and spoke to reporters.
10: What's your uh, reaction to, uh, to the
11: Well, so, first off, I'm disappointed that something this could happen in this country. Um, and um, I'm glad the judge did what she did. He gave the sentence she did. Uh, my heart still goes out to uh, Mr. Little John. Uh, what he did was, a, a, you know, it was it, it was a threat against democracy. Um, I can still have um, uh, compassion for, for him as an individual, but um, she did the right thing.
10: Do you feel enough was done based on everything that was? Just-
11: no, I think the I think Department of Justice, this is just all political game. Uh, it's over a thousand people, were, and they only prosecuted one case. They still haven't gone against ProPublica. Um, they went against you know Project Veritas when they had the president's daughter's diary. They raided them. Uh, they had criminal investigation, but ProPublica has my tax returns, other people's tax returns. They've never been prosecuted. New York Times has never been prosecuted for disclosing information, and I think that's wrong.
10: Is there anything else that you guys in Congress will be taking up in this case that you guys can do as a believer? Where do you see this going forward?
11: Well, unfortunately, nothing's going to change until we get a president that doesn't want to play political games. Joe Biden's playing political games with the Department of Justice, um, and that's exactly what what happened here. Uh, over a 1,000 people had their tax returns stolen, including me, and they prosecute one case, uh, so they have a light sentence.
10: Did you end up, read, I, end up reading your victim uh, impact? Score?
11: I didn't get all I didn't. I wasn't able to get all of it out, but I got the gist of it out.
10: Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to share that you didn't get out?
1: No. Okay, your thanks. Time. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Senator Rick Scott, Republican from Florida, outside the federal courthouse today in Washington, D.C. More from the NBC News article. Charles Littlejohn briefly addressed the court before receiving his sentence, saying that he acted out of a sincere but misguided belief that I was serving the public. Taxpayers deserve to know how easy it was for the wealthy to avoid paying into the system. I made my decision with the full knowledge that I would likely end up in a courtroom. Wall Street today, the Dow up 224, NASDAQ up 172, S&P up 36. From e News, the Department of Energy unveiled a heavily anticipated scaled back regulation Monday to cut greenhouse gas emissions from stovetop cooking in the U.S., going with a compromise that pleased gas stove producers and environmentalists alike. And today is the 15th anniversary of a federal pay equity law. The White House Press Secretary Kareem Jean-Pierre spoke about new actions coming from President Biden.
5: Fifteen years ago, then President Obama signed the Lilly Ledbetter Fair, Fair Pay Act into law, making uh, marking a victory in the, in the fight for equal pay. To build on the progress we've made under this law today, President Biden announced new actions to advance pay equity for the federal workforce and employees of federal contractors. These new actions will help pay millions of workers fairly, close gender and racial wage gaps, and result in tangible benefits for government workers. These policies are good for workers, our economy, and American families. They advance pay equity and strengthen the economic security of women across the country. And President and the president remains uh, committed to building on this work.
1: White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, she was referring to the Office of Personnel Management today, issuing a final rule prohibiting the federal government from considering a person's current or past pay level when determining salary for federal employment. And there'll be a proposed rule to apply to federal contractors an article from People magazine. Actor Chris Evans heading to Washington, D.C. to engage first-time voters ahead of the 2024 election. On Tuesday morning, Evans and actor Mark Kasson, who co-founded the bipartisan civic engagement website A Starting Point in 2020, are bringing dozens of high school seniors to the White House for a conversation on youth engagement in U.S. politics, focusing specifically on the primary issues affecting young people today like economic opportunity, job creation, and climate action. A number of senior White House officials will also be on hand to answer questions, including Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm, Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adiamo, and former Columbia Mayor Steve Benjamin, who heads the White House Office of Public Engagement. That was from People magazine. Those two actors and now activists, were at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. today talking about how they started this project.
2: We thought we could help shine a light on certain issues and create more civic engagement. I mean, we each have our own individual social medias, we have our own individual opinions, you know, but that only reaches a certain amount, and I think we both felt that more good could come from creating a mechanism, a platform, where it's about engagement, it's about education, demystifying issues to create a government that more accurately reflects who we are, because if you have half of the country not voting and not using their voice, how can you ever have a government that understands where we're going? So, so it felt, you know, as much as I like getting on social media and spouting off my own opinions, you realize that's only doing so much, and this felt like a
6: more effective way to use our platforms.
8: And to be fair, we didn't mean to do all of this. We kind Whoops. of had, we, we had a very i mean Chris originally had a very narrow idea, which was all right i 'm a little embarrassed uh, that i don 't know the definition of some of these things, like NAFTA or whatever, not specifically NAFTA you may have known what that was i didn't't uh, but, um, uh, but and you know let 's get the horses let 's hear it from the horse 's mouth let 's get three Republicans and three Democrats to originally answer and define each of these things, and as we began talking to them we realized that it was kind of a unique channel of communication we were opening up, and it seemed a shame if we didn't use that to, uh, to hear more from these folks, and then to begin to unpack some of the stuff that we were experiencing for the audience that we happened to be able to throw it towards. And then hopefully, quite frankly, and I think it's important to say, you know, we're very conscious that we're not uh, reporters or news. You know, We create a platform of information so that people can go, quite frankly, to where you all work, and and really dive deeper. So, you know, it started very small and then we couldn't help ourselves. And now we are where we
1: are. Mark Casson and Chris Evans, co-founders of the Civic Engagement website, a starting point at the National Press Club in Washington today. Chris Evans also asked if you ever considered running for political office. He said, you know, there was a time. But then he said, I think there are better ways to be part of the world without having to do the work that goes into being an elected official. Their website is a starting point. And if you click on counterpoints on there, it brings you to videos labeled the discussion between two members from across the aisle, members of Congress, some of the topics. And they run about seven to 10 minutes. Should the federal government cancel student loan debt? Do we need a wall on the southern border? Should Congress eliminate the filibuster? Startingpoint.com. Thanks for listening to Washington today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word. It's free. And get the stories making headlines in Washington sent to your inbox every day. Subscribe at c slash connect. Have a good night.